Comedy icon Margaret Cho and her podcast from Erios called The Margaret Cho brings you a weekly intimate conversation with an eclectic range of guests from stand-ups to drag queens to rock stars and activists. The conversations are organic, hilarious, and she never shies away from subjects like race, sexuality, or politics. You can listen to The Margaret Show wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Tuesday, September 22nd. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. Today on the show, Long Long is one of the finest classical pianists in the world, uh, if not maybe the best-known classical pianist in the world. He's the only classical piano player I can think of that has, like, you know how there's, like, the Slash Les Paul? Like, Slash has his own brand of guitar and, like, the Springsteen Telecaster, and you can buy a Telecaster with Bruce Springsteen's name on it. You can buy, a, like, the Long Long Signature Piano. Like, that's that's what a big deal he is. Anyway, so he's 40 years old, and he has spent, check this out, the last 27 years getting ready to record the piece he just recorded. Um, it is a, a suite called The Goldberg Variations by Johann Sebastian Bach, made famous by the Canadian pianist Glenn Gould. So we talk about Gould. We talk about where he needed to be in his life to record this. And we talk about why. Why is this his life's work? I, I love talking to Long Long. And even if you're not a classical music fan, it's important that you listen because his whole thing is trying to get you in. And uh, I, I love talking to him. After that, I think the conversation around race and country music is really interesting because it's, it's, it's a place where um, you can have conversations about race, about class, about capitalism, about commerce, about socialism, about history, uh, sort of all at once. And Reese Palmer in 2007 became the first black woman in 20 years to have a country song on the Billboard country charts. And she has a new show on Apple Music called Color Me Country where she wants to talk a little bit about um, so-called diversity in country music. She wants to talk a little bit about folks of color in country music. And we talk a little bit about her history and what she hopes to do with this show. And then as Schitt's Creek becomes the biggest story in Canadian arts this year as they sweep the Emmys, uh, we re-air our own trip, our Q road trip to the real-life Schitt's Creek. And then finally, Ken Lum, who is one of Canada's finest artists and one of Canada's finest artistic minds, and he's less interested in what you see in a gallery, and he's more interested in the art that you drive by in your car. So at a time when monuments are coming down, what a perfect time to talk to someone like Ken Lum. All right, show starts now. Welcome to the show. It is Tuesday. Take a listen to this. That's from Johann Sebastian Bach's Goldberg Variations, as performed by Glenn Gould, the Canadian pianist, back in 1955. That work pretty much turned Glenn Gould into the closest you can get to being a rock star in the classical world. And a lot of pianists will tell you it's one of the most demanding works to pull off, not just technically, but emotionally. But if anyone's up to the challenge, it's Long Long. He's one of the biggest names in classical music. He's performed for the Pope and the Queen and former U.S. President Barack Obama. He's played alongside Metallica and Pharrell Williams and in front of billions of people at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. I recently had the chance to speak with Long Long, one of the finest classical musicians 
of our time about his two new renditions of the Goldberg Variations and why. How are you? Good. How are you, Tom? I'm not too bad. I, I, you know what? I, I really wish you could be here because I don't know if you can. Can you see the piano behind me there? Yeah, you have a beautiful studio. So that yeah. is that is Glenn Gould's practice piano. That's what he practiced on. Yeah, I, I remember. I, I was actually in that studio before uh, because I know that, uh, you know, I mean, obviously my favorite uh, recording of uh, uh, Goldberg is the Glenn Good one. So I was uh, in the CBC uh, radio station trying to get some uh, great inspiration from him. Dude, what do you get from that? Like, I know you, you played um, Gould Steinway at the National Arts Center in Ottawa a little while mm-hmm. ago. Do you feel something yeah. when you sit down at a piano that someone like that played? I mean, obviously, I watched so many uh, videos of him, especially for the Gold Preparation. I, I watched so many times. And... Uh, and when I touched his instrument, it reminded me from his video. And uh, it really, I mean, it's really getting uh, closer, you know, with, uh, with the sound of the instrument. Why, why was now the right time to do the Goldberg Variations? Uh, I've been working really long time because when you have a recording like Glenn Good, I mean, we, we all get scared, you know, to, <laughs> to have a, you know, to have a, such an incredible level. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, it just will be really ridiculous if I, I do something which, you know, even myself will not satisfy. Uh, so I have to really study the piece as long as I can. So I did, as a 10-year-old boy, listening to Glenn Good play uh, on, on the record, obviously. And then, uh, so until 37. So 27 years of uh, preparation. Uh, and I, I think I really need it. Particularly, I have to learn the Baroque way, the Baroque style of uh, playing. Tell me a little bit about the difference between the more like the way you would normal, normally play and the more what you had to do in order to play the Baroque style of, of box music. Sure, sure. You know, for example, like when I was 10 years old, I, I listened to Glenn Good recording. And some of the passage, he played almost like a, a sound like a harpsichord right. or like an organ, Baroque organ. And uh, obviously, he put a lot of uh, personal uh, interest and personal interpretations uh, into the work, but still, you feel that he totally observed everything with the Baroque style, in order to make you know his own rendition in the highest level. And and for me, you know, the first thing to starting working is on the uh, the ornamentations mm. on the hops harpsichord to to make sure that I get more authentic. French and Italian style of ornamentations doing the Baroque style. And then, you know, trying to figure out how to connect from the harpsichord and, and also the Baroque organ with the feet, obviously, you know, the performance not only in the, the hands, mm-hmm. the, all the bass lines are, are played by the feet. And how to connect that to the modern piano. And also to put like 30 individual characters out of this piece. And, and also to have this sort of this connection between each one uh, within the nine canons as the basic structure of the piece. And then the really challenge is the, uh, the Variation 25, what we call the Black, black Pearl. I mean, it's the most uh, kind of sad and, and tragic and pain, painfulness and struggling passive piece. And, and that piece really take me kind of a long time to uh, to, to work on. But one thing I, I, have a, I have to say that because 
when you hear the late version of Glenn Good in 1981's mm -hmm. version, he played many uh, passages very beautifully and very slowly. And this is fantastic because when you have more time, you can really work on all the details like in a more precise way. I want to take a, a listen to your take on the Goldberg Variations. Sure. Goldberg Variations uh, by Johann Sebastian Bach, performed by my guest Long Long. It's beautiful. Thank you, thank you. It's a it's a, it's a beautiful interpretation of that. It's you know it's 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 that's the version you did in studio. There's another version you did in a, a church in St. Thomas Church in Leipzig in in yes. Germany, where Bach yeah. Bach worked, where Bach is laid laid to rest. What made you want to go there, and what made you want to go there, and what did you feel when you were there? I I feel. I was extremely connected to Bach's soul in that church. Somehow I feel he's still alive. Uh, and I also played his Baroque organ. Uh, I played some part of the Goldberg and also like Toccata to feel, you know, Bach's time sound. Um, and, and also the, the echo in the St. Thomas Church kind of brings back um, like kind of like bring us back to the time where you know Bach was composing a lot of his uh, cantatas. Um, and then when I was like playing at the piano, he's next to me. His uh, grave was uh, next to the piano. And so I can literally, I mean, not feeling his heartbeat, <laughs> but I'm feeling my heartbeat. <laughs> and, but somehow I, I got so emotional, especially, you know, playing to the... Uh, 30th variation, which is like the family reunion songs. Uh, and uh, I found that I almost kind of uh, thought about the entire journey of learning Bach since when I was four years old playing his menuet and, uh, and then the two or three part you mentioned, and then to the French suite, English suite, and then bell temper clavier, and then eventually, obviously, the Goldberg variation. So the whole journey is kind of a, kind of a, um, starting, you know, appear in my mind, and I got so emotional. I, I had a, I, I start crying a little bit. It was so moving that moment. You know, it's it's funny. I think about the Goldbergs in in in, in a way that like, it feels like there's abstract art all around the world, but there's like two or three pieces yes. of abstract art that reach everybody somehow. And we're not entirely sure how, how it does it, but everyone seems to get it and everyone seems to know it. Bach, who can be, I mean, it sounds so logical and it sounds so technical, but I, I, I do see it sometimes as being very abstract. There's something about the Goldbergs that reaches everybody. And I, I'm not entirely sure what it is. But what is it that is so special about that, that composition? I mean, it's really mainly thanks to Glenn Good. I, obviously, this piece is a, it, it's certainly the highest level piece. But before Glenn Good's interpretation, I mean, not so many people, you know, respect this piece as this level. Mm -hmm. um, 
this piece often said about you know the sleeping piece lullabies you know but when Glenn Good made the rendition he made it almost like a baroque orchestra like a baroque opera he made it you know into the most dramatic approach and which totally opens up the dimensions of baroque period and this is something it's quite important and and because of that you know now we all come in you know to look over to this gigantic piece with a very fresh eye um and and to also to be very brief to do a lot of uh, very creative emotional interpretations mm -hmm. based on the Glenn Good one so so in a way you know we we are really grateful to to Glenn Good because of uh, because of him you know we get closer to Bach into uh, you know in another style of playing. So what do you what, what do you do then when you come into this and say like I'm so inspired by Glenn Gould and I've watched these videos and I've yeah. sat down at the piano, but you obviously want to make it you want to make it your own. Absolutely, yeah. I do like to make my own, but still, I mean, you know, it's like we have to to know the the you know the giant's work. We have to know the best of the interpretation first in order to make some. Uh, new ideas out of it so and so so in a way that i i studied very carefully with both of uh, glenn good's uh, recording but obviously you know for when i perform i do develop something quite personal which i i always trying to put some of a very personal approach into whatever music i play whether rachmaninoff or chopin or you know mozart and in this case it's bach i have to because otherwise I don't feel 100% in and 100% connected. So I have to put some of my personal colors, uh, personal touch, uh, personal dynamics. And uh, so, so this is a quite, a, quite a normal. Yeah. But in any case, we have to learn from something really unique. And that's the, the Glenn Good version. My, my guest is Long Long, the pianist who recently released his version of Bach's The Goldberg Variations. Um, I want to play another piece of music for you right now. This is not Glenn Gould. Take a listen to this. It's Franz Liszt, Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 2. Better known, maybe, to my guest Long Long is the theme from the Tom and Jerry cartoon, The Cat Concerto. Can you tell us the significance yes. of why we're playing that for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I was uh, two years old when I heard Tom and Jerry playing The Cat's Concerto, which is actually Liszt, Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 2. And I got so inspired. I had a little piano next to the TV, so I watched the, the big piano in the TV, and I looked over into my little piano, and I thought maybe this is the grandson, a grandson of the, the, you know, the, the big one. So I started to <laughs> imitate Tom. I even got his uh, tuxedo, and that was like my, my little birthday gift. <laughs> and I was uh, so into a cartoon, and uh, so because that time the cartoon always had the classical music and jazz music, kind of a perfectly matched with all the motions uh, and uh, and that was so fascinating for me to to see how music influenced the pictures we have another clip take a listen to this i can't remember anything can't tell if this 
That is you living every like 14-year-old stoner in their parents' basement's dream and playing with Metallica right there, by the way. <laughs> they're, they're great. They're, they're, really, they're really exciting uh, people. <laughs> what, do, what, do you, what do you get out of playing with, with musicians like that? I mean, musicians, I mean, I, I can see the relation between classical music and metal, especially. I know a lot of heavy metal guitarists who end up learning Bach, especially who end up trying to learn fugues with two hands and stuff like that. But, you know, what do you get out of um, performing with people like that outside of your world? I, I mean, first of all, they, they were extremely exciting. You know, when, when you play with them, you're like flying high, you know. Uh, and, uh, and it's almost, uh, sometimes I feel like in some classical music, like Rachmaninoff third piano concerto or like a, Bartok piano concerto mm-hmm. or like a Prokofiev, you know, Prokofiev sonata. It's almost uh, heavy metal, and so. But obviously, we have to put the piano, you know, a kind of a real loud speaker. <laughs> you you have to, you know, you have to go wild. Obviously, with the uh, the heavy metal. Yeah, but what I got is their extremely energetic way of making music, and and that is also a, quite a encouraging you know uh, even where even where we would do a lot of classical music repertoire but for the piano part there's some music as i mentioned before it, it has a heavy metal side all, all, of course like when you do list piano uh, etude it's it's almost uh, sound like a kind of a uh, early heavy metal <laughs> romantic right. heavy metal yeah. but but i feel like it's all part of you not being afraid to step outside of what classical musicians typically do, which is, you know, play classical music recitals for classical music audiences. You're not afraid to go on Jimmy Fallon's show and play like the chopsticks into, into the Mozart, into the Maple Leaf Rag. You're not afraid to play with Metallica or play with Pharrell. And I know that has come with its share of criticisms from the classical, classical music community. How do you navigate that? I mean, look, so that's why we have to balance. Uh, so that's why I, for me, the most of the time I'm playing a classical recital because I am a classical pianist. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we have to do the serious stuff like gold Berberation and Mozart concertos and Beethoven work. And that's what we do Any, anyway. I mean, that's like 90% of what, what I do every day. Yeah, but then, you know, sometimes we have to also know what's the new generation is like, what their taste. So then we also should uh, tasting some different uh, uh, taste of music. Yeah, but we always come back, you know, I always come back to play classical recital. I mean, this is my profession and I know this is my forever profession. I don't want to mess up with, uh, you know, the traditional uh, style of playing. Why do you think people are so sacred about it why why do you think people can be so worried about it you know that that it's that when someone like you goes and plays a metallica why do you think it bothers people so much i i don't think it bothers you know everybody i mean i may, maybe there are some people you know they they're you know they they only want to listen to uh only classical music mm-hmm. which is also great i mean it's, you, you know but uh for me i'm just trying to to uh bring more you know youngsters 
into classical music. And I think, you know, I got a lot of uh, young people interested to listen to Bach after, you know, they see my collaboration with uh, mu uh, musicians not from classical music uh, uh, genre. So for me, I want to, you know, broaden up the, the classical music circle and to uh, invite more newcomers to listening to classical music and to come into the concert hall. Um, and and I, I was very uh, fortunate in many of my recitals, classical recitals, mm -hmm. um, lot of lot of uh, people came to me and they say this is their first piano recital. So I, I feel very proud of that. Yeah. There's very few piano recitals happening right now, though, because of the pandemic. Uh, how, how are you holding yeah. up not being able to be on stage? Uh, it's, 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 quite a, it's a quite a nightmare. Uh, yeah, but we're, I'm trying to, you know, to, to play some short things on social media to always, uh, you know, showing some of my new repertoire of uh, learning and to share with my audience. So, so I, I mean, in a way that, of course, we all miss stage, but uh, in the same time, we're still practicing and still uh, work on the new, new pieces. So when everything is, uh, hopefully, you know, when everything uh, finishes, uh, the bad things <laughs> finishes, I can go back with a lot of new pieces what to perform for 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 you. What do you miss the most about it? It's just somehow the, the action on stage. It's the you know this coronavirus really made us more united as uh, musicians because we believe stage is really our best home. There's nothing can replace the stage and nothing can uh, replace the live concert. I would agree with you there. We're, we're out of time now. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. All the best to Canada. Long Long's two versions of Bach's The Goldberg Variations are out now.
That is Long Long with variation number three of the Goldberg Variations by Johann Sebastian Bach. Before that, you heard Long Long talking about the work that went behind making this recording. This is Long from Churches, and you are listening to Q with Tom Powell. As she's mentioned, I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Here are some stories for you today. That's the sound of the news there. Over the summer, a story about talk show host Ellen DeGeneres might have caught your eye. Ellen DeGeneres, who's famously known as a promoter of all things kindness and togetherness, had to reckon with accusations that her workplace was anything but. There was an investigation looking into several allegations of a toxic work environment at The Ellen Show. Yesterday on her show's season premiere, Ellen DeGeneres addressed the allegations for the first time on camera. Take a listen. I learned that things happened here that never should have happened. I take that very seriously, and I want to say I am so sorry to the people who were affected. I know that I'm in a position of privilege and power, and I realize that with that comes responsibility, and I take responsibility for what happens at my show. This is the Ellen DeGeneres Show. I am Ellen DeGeneres. My name is there. My name is there. My name is on underwear. (laughs) We have had a lot of conversations over the last few weeks about the show, our workplace, and what we want for the future. We have made the necessary changes, and today we are starting a new chapter. Ellen DeGeneres also addressed allegations about her own behavior. She was described as unkind to her housekeeping staff and to restaurant employees. Responding to those criticisms, she explains that she is, quote, a work in progress. News now from the Canadian recording industry. So can the organization that represents composers, authors, and music publishers of Canada just announced their final awards for 2020. And yesterday, the Canadian singer-songwriter Sean Mendes made So Can History. Sean Mendes, you might know as the guy from this jam. I love it when you call me this year, Shawn Mendes received five awards, including Songwriter of the Year. This makes him the most decorated artist in a single year at the SoCan Awards. The awards, as you might expect, were held online. Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Tom Power. Just for a minute, I want to take you back to 2007. Taylor Swift, Kenny Chesney are at the top of the Billboard country charts. Also on the list, 
was an artist named Reese Palmer, and she was in the process when she got on the charts of making history. Oh, you don't have to be a Georgia peach from Savannah face to say. From Arkansas to appreciate a Southern girl. Don't need no key from West Virginia to have it in ya. Show the world you're a country girl. Reese Palmer with her debut single, Country Girl. And when that song came out, she became the first black woman to chart a country song since 1987. Today, Reese Palmer is sharing stories of artists like her, women of color performing in country, Americana, and roots and folk music. She's got a new radio show on Apple Music called Color Me Country, and it's out to change the image of country music. Reese Palmer is on the line right now. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Thanks for asking. Nice to talk to you. Before we get to your show, when did you first uh, start loving country music? Like, what's your earliest memory of loving country music? Um, my earliest memory of loving country music was um, Saturday mornings in my house. My mother would play um, all these records, like just a ton of records. They have great records, my parents. And uh, we'd clean the house. And those records were always like, it would depend. Like sometimes it'd be Andre Crouch. Sometimes it'd be Kenny Rogers. Sometimes it'd be Dolly Parton or Patsy Cline or Aretha Franklin. But country music has always been a part of my list, like my musical diet. So it just, it just always was just there. It's just always a part of it. We have, we have a little bit of Patsy Cline right now. I know this song meant something to you. Take a listen to this. If you got leaving on your mind I mean, there's nothing better than that. Uh, what goes through your mind when you listen to that, Reese? Well, first of all, I mean, Patsy Cline has the most in- incredible phrasing of anybody that's ever sung. And it also, it just rem- it reminds me of my mother. It makes me think of my mom. It was one of her favorite songs. And um, I actually did this song, a uh, cover version of this song on my first album. It's one of the greatest country songs of all time. And then you end up becoming a group that's kind of like... I see. I've seen you describe it as sort of like the Mickey Mouse Club. What was that all about? <laughs> yeah, we were um, we were sponsored by a local television station in St. Louis. I grew up in um, Eureka, Missouri, which mm. is right outside of St. Louis, and there was a television station there called KPLR Channel Eleven, and it was um, for for some of the older people. People in their late 30s, you'll remember the WB in the United States. And it was um, it was a WB station. And so they hired us to go around to fairs and to Six Flags and different um, KPLR events and just sing cover songs. And in the summer, we would host the television shows. So like there'd be one or two of us and we'd be in the station. Hey, you guys stay tuned for Jenny Jones coming up at three o'clock and like that kind of thing. It's, and um, I thought I was famous. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were, you were famous. You're Kansas City star. You were famous, you know, it was real. You know, I was, I was, I was Missouri famous. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so then you decide uh, to perform at the Arkansas State Fair. I should point this as a Canadian show you're, you're on right now. Yes. So it's important that we point out that you covered a Canadian legend. Take a listen to this. Oh, 
That is Shania Twain and Any Man of Mine. Right? You were singing Shania. I did. That was my song. Like, we all had to, um, we all had to choose songs or we were given songs by the music director and they knew that I like country music. And so they were just like, well, you sing Any Man of Mine. So that was my song. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of reaction did you get when you sang at the Arkansas State Fair? Um, It was funny because we came on after Livestock. So there were feathers and... You mean you you came on after like cows and chickens were on the stage? Yes, after they judged the livestock and gave up ribbons and stuff. Yes, and now it's time for some cover music, people. Um, So we came out and, you know, the the beginning chords of Any Man of Mine come on. And I think the whole audience um, was pretty excited because that was a big song at the time. And there was a white girl in the group and i think everybody expected melissa to step up and instead i did and it was a little bit of like huh okay <laughs> and, then, and then by the time it was done you know everybody's clapping and dancing and that sort of thing so i think it worked out well but yeah i think it was a surprising for them yeah i heard a story that when you were a teenager you showed your manager some songs you were working on and you were like hey these are country songs these are country songs i'm writing and and they didn't well, what did they say back to you they were, um, I thought that they would just, you know, like, oh, okay, she she writes a lot of different things, but they were more, they, they inquired more about it. They wanted to know, well, okay, so you wrote this. And I said, yeah. And they were like, you wrote this for a country artist. And I was like, the song in particular that we're talking about was a song that I'd written for Reba McIntyre. And um, they they were just like really surprised. And they asked me after I got done singing the song, they were just like, so you wrote this? And I said, yeah. And they said, and and you sang it like a country song. And I was like, yeah. And they said, why don't you want to sing country? Why didn't you tell us that you could do this? And I was just like, well, you know, honestly, like black people don't do that. Like I, I don't, I, cause at the time, the only black person that I knew of that did country music was Charlie Pride. And so I didn't think that that was a viable option for me, to be quite honest. And they were like, girl, no, that's the thing that makes you that's makes you you. That's your 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 uniqueness. That's your thing. And um, surprisingly enough, they encouraged me. And mind you, these weren't Nashville managers like they were um, two black women from St. Louis, Mm -hmm. just like me. And their experience was primarily in hip hop and R&B. And so we all embarked on this journey to try to get me a country deal together, like without any connections or anything. So when you get to the top of the charts, when you when you make it on the Billboard country chart in 2007, I mean, it had been 20 years since any uh, other black woman had made it to those charts. Um, I, I guess. How did that feel? Um, well, first of all, I had no idea um, at the time that that was a thing. I just, I guess I just didn't even think about it. I was so focused on, you know, at that time we were radio touring like crazy. And I had been doing it for like nine months when the song finally made it up on the charts. So like, it was a lot of behind the scenes, hard work that went into getting the song on the chart period. And we were an indie. So, you know, add 10 times that. But when I heard it, I don't know. It was a mixture of excitement and sadness because it just seemed really sad that in 2007, we still had black people first. And that just seemed weird to me. Let's say that. So, yeah, it was 
It was, yeah, it was weird. That's a conversation we're having so much on the show these days that like at the same time that you want to celebrate a first, there is a sadness that why did it take so long for this to be the first? Right. If you just- yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that it just was, um, it was kind of bittersweet. And the unfortunate thing was, is that that kind of took over the conversation from that point forward. Um, when I talked to journalists and when I did interviews or anything like anybody, any, all anyone wanted to talk about was that and me being black rather than talking about my artistry. And so, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was, you know, it was, (laughs) I'm trying to think of the word, like it was, it was a double-edged sword in, in some ways, like it was a blessing. And then at the same time, it was kind of a curse. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Reese Palmer. She was the first black woman on the Billboard country chart since 87. Now she's highlighting the work of other women of color in country Americana and roots music on a new radio show on Apple Music called Color Me Country. So, yeah, tell me about the show. What what inspired you to make this show? So I was inspired um, actually by a very unlikely source, by Lil, Lil Nas X in Old Town Road. Um when the song came out, I very curiously watched um, the controversy unfold and how I found it really interesting that Lil Nas X and this song were the hill that Billboard and the industry decided that they were going to die on. I, I should give people some background because, here. Lil Nas X released a song um, that oh, yes. the, the, the Billboard country charts had to make a, some kind of a decision as to whether this was country music or not. It was by a black performer. It used it was used trap beats. Um, and they ultimately determined that this was not country music, causing a huge uproar in the country music community. Anyway, I just want to give people a, a, a bit of background. No. There. Thank you. No. And and the thing that I found interesting about it was the fact that there has been so many like there have been so many times where Nashville has intersected with hip hop, with Nelly and Tim McGraw, with Florida Georgia Line and Nelly. And, you know, there's several, quote unquote, country rap artists like Cowboy Troy and Camel Collins and um, and Sam Hunt uses trap beats and put out a mixtape. And so I thought it was really interesting that like Little Nas X and this particular song were like a line too far. And partnered with that, I noticed that a lot of the press only focused on five black artists and that was all they talked about. And so if you didn't know anything, if you didn't know anything about history or know anything about the artists or have any interest in that, you would think that there were literally only five black artists that ever happened in country music. And so I made, it started out just as a Twitter thread and it took me 10 minutes and I made like, maybe it was like 20 tweets long and it had all these different artists. And I started with black women and people started retweeting it and started adding to it and just commenting on it. And it turned into like this huge conversation. And so I was just like, people really care about, people care about this. And you know, I care about it. And acknowledgement is a really big thing to me. And I feel like, I don't know, I think people should get their flowers while they're alive. Mm. And so I wanted to, I just wanted to acknowledge these women. I wanted to acknowledge these artists. And I felt like if the industry wasn't going to do it, then I would do it. And so that's where the idea came from. And I started working at the beginning of the quarantine 
in my state, I'm in North Carolina and it started in March and I knew that everyone was going to be home. So I just started writing to these artists on social media. Some of these people are my friends. So I would just text them. I'm like, Hey, do you have some time? Like just set aside like an hour or two and like, let's just talk and I'll record it. And it was just going to be a podcast. And literally right before I was going to release the podcast, I got an email from Apple Music. And the rest is what you hear now. Well, let's hear a little bit of it. This is a clip from your show, Color Me Country. This is from your interview with the singer Miko Marks. There's only so many times a person can ask me, oh, you're black. How come you're doing country? What made you decide? You know, that question just really was one of the ones that just I hated to answer because, A, I had a little bit of that of my own to deal with, you know. Yes. But then as I found out about the foundation of country music, I understood more like, oh, this is naturally me. That's when I knew, like, well, why are you asking me this question? I'm an originator of the music. That's the singer Miko Marks on your show, Color Me Country. Reese Palmer, what she's saying there kind of ties in with what you said uh, when you were a teenager, the idea that black people don't do country music. And what I love what Miko's saying there is that when you look at the actual history of country music and you look back to like Ralph Peer and you look back to the early recordings of, of country music and the separation of music along color lines mm-hmm. and, uh, around Jim Crow, it is in, in no way not – it is in no way white music. It is in no way not black music. Where, where, do, where does that come from, do you think? I mean, I think you just said it perfectly. The assumption is uh, it's really great marketing <laughs> that's been done for decades that we have bought. I mean, and, and unfortunately in the United States especially, like that's, that's a common thread with a lot of things. We, um, we are sold narratives and we buy them hook, line, and sinker, and we allow them to create these cultural divides that are ridiculous. And I say on the first episode of the show, like one of the things that I love about country music is that it is one of the most thoroughly American art forms. And I, and I say that meaning that it took several of us, several different types of us, um, cultures, ethnicities to come together to create this sound that everyone has come to know and love as country music. And it doesn't take away from, it doesn't diminish the history to talk about these things. I feel like it makes it richer and fuller and it makes the color, I mean, it makes the story more vibrant. And um, yeah, I think that my whole goal with this is to change the narrative and to normalize people of color in these spaces and make it so that we don't have first continuing into, you know, further into time. In in the last minute we have left here, um, it it, it has been an interesting year for country music. You know, you have, whether it's the Dixie Chicks dropping Dixie from their name, the Grand Ole Opry, which has a horrible history of not promoting performers to be members of the Grand Ole Opry, posting about Black Lives Matter, or you have Mickey Guyton, First black woman to perform solo at the Academy of Country Music Awards. I I, I never really want to ask the question, like, do you have hope or anything like that? Because I think that's more for for other folks (laughs) to decide. But, like, do the changes at least feel meaningful to you? Um, I have been saying this and I'm going to keep saying it. Ask me in a year. Yeah. Um, I think it's really easy right now to do the right thing. And, like, look, I'm not going to take away from anybody's um, efforts. Like, it's a lot more than... Shoot, this wasn't even a conversation in 2007 when my record came out. Yeah. So the fact that we're even talking about these things and really pondering them 
is wonderful. And I hope that people continue to push themselves and continue to be uncomfortable. But we'll see in a year if if we're right back to where we were or if we're in a completely different place. We'll see. I love talking to you. I also, I've, I've tried to hold out until the end of the interview just to say like, I love your music so much. It's so nice to talk oh, to you. thank you. <laughs> I really, really appreciate Thank you. Yeah, I feel like here at the CBC and Canadian Public Radio, country music fans are, are scarcer than hen's teeth. So I was, you know, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm happy to get a chance to talk to you about it. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Reese Palmer hosts the radio show Color Me Country. You can find it on Apple Music now. And Reese's latest album came out last fall. It's called Revival. All right, let's move on here. You may have heard the CBC comedy show Schitt's Creek had an incredible night at the Emmys on Sunday. They won nine awards, including Best Comedy. They cleaned up in all four acting categories. But some would argue that the breakout star of Schitt's Creek was the actual Schitt's Creek, the place. Where's its Emmy? Where's its Emmy in the category of best quirky but charming town? Probably with nice soft serve. Schitt's Creek is a real place in Ontario. I mean, it's kind of a real-ish place. Earlier this year, we decided to take a field trip there. Take a listen. The Real Schitt's Creek is about an hour north of Toronto, in Ontario, in this hamlet called Goodwood. Population 663. It's got one major intersection. And if you watch the show, you'll instantly recognize it as Schitt's Creek. Look at the state of this place. It's like we're in a Mumbaian slum. I mean, would it kill someone to plant a few peonies? Some of the key landmarks in the show, like the cafe or Bob's Big Blue Garage, are real buildings on the main strip. You know what? It looks a lot like Bob's Garage on any given day, when it's in Goodwood or in Schitt's Creek. Dave Barton is the mayor of Uxbridge. That's the township where you'll find Goodwood. Dave spent his childhood in the area... And it was a pretty happy one. Oh, it's a great place to grow up. Small town, soccer fields, hockey arena. You want know, a high school where everybody knew everyone else. Thanks to Schitt's Creek, the township of Goodwood, this quiet hamlet where everybody knows everyone else, it's been a lot busier these last few years. The cast and crew return every summer to shoot new episodes. And after a while, the locals started setting up lawn chairs to watch it. Yeah, you see, it's the first thing you see when you drive in. That's all we need, some outsider coming in here and changing everything. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, imagine how much of a giant spectacle this would be. Dozens of strangers crushing into your small town, setting up all these big floodlights on the main road, parking huge moving trucks full of equipment. Marilyn Leonard lives in Goodwood. She owns one of the stores that they use in Schitt's Creek. Okay, so here we have yarn that that I sell, not a lot. Here we have raw fiber for spinning or felting. Her shop is a knitting store called Romney Wools. It's actually got a few locations, including one in Toronto. Which is why I don't watch the program, because I spin and weave. And She remembers when the Schitt's Creek location manager approached her years ago. My first reaction was, no. <laughs> no way. Because I in Toronto, I've had a lot of filming in our studios and things like that. And I know how much it can disrupt your life. 
If you watch Schitt's Creek, you'll probably know Marilyn Storr better as the Rose Apothecary. Dan Levy's character, David, owns it. He sells all these new age things like body milks and cat hair scarves. Uh, hey, here's an easy one. A brief description of the business. Yeah, it's an environment. Um, and yes, we will be selling things, but it's more like, more like a branded immersive experience. During the summer, Marilyn is pretty used to Schitt's Creek fans peering through the window and taking photos of her shop. We had one guy that came from the States, and he was making a pilgrimage. He had stage four cancer, and the only thing that made him happy was watching the show. Isn't it incredible? Back on Goodwood's main strip, there's one key location that we haven't talked about yet. office is over there where that table saw is. And the first shot of the office was over the tops of these screwdrivers. On the show, you might know it as Bob's Garage. It's this really weathered blue auto shop. It's where Eugene Levy's character rents office space. You told me you had a sweet little office space, okay? And frankly, working out of a garage is not what I had in mind. Well, uh, out of curiosity, uh, what did you have in mind? An office! In real life, Bob's Garage is a workshop owned by a guy named Joe Toby. He's a full-time volunteer, and he makes furniture for kids with special needs. The day we visited, he was working on an accessible bed, and honestly, he wasn't all that thrilled with all this attention. I don't do any social media. I don't do any of that at all. Some people call me Bob, but that was the name on the garage. That's fine. The fact that Bob's Garage was an actual workshop actually came in handy during filming. Joe said he often loaned stuff out to the TV crew. They would run out of nuts and bolts, so they'd come in and steal them from me. They needed a power supply, so I put a a latch door for them outside so they could bring their cables in without having to come through the doorway. Then they put the Johnny on the spot outside and brought a generator, and I said, well, why don't I just give you a wall plug? So I put an outside wall plug for them. For the most part, this is the kind of relationship that everyone we meet in Goodwood seems to have with Schitt's Creek. It's symbiotic, cordial, curious. Lots of productions have come through Goodwood over the years, looking for that picturesque small-town setting. Twelve Monkeys, Men with Brooms. It was even the setting of a very weird movie starring Meatloaf called To Catch a Yeti. I have your Yeti, Mr. Sturgeon. That's a Yeti? That's a Yeti. Yeah, but Schitt's Creek has a special relationship with the town. To some, the two have become interchangeable. Uh, can I get uh, two of the Empire cookies? Yeah, I'll get two of the Empire. I'll get two of the Millionaire. There's a local bake shop called Anina's. It does the catering for the show. Marco Cassano is a chef. He's also the owner of the shop. It's Goodwood, but now it's referred to as Schitt's Creek. Even if you go on local Instagrams and stuff, they say brought to you from Schitt's Creek and stuff. So all the most of the residents and stuff play with it now, too. Yeah, we should just change the name now. <laughs> no, I'll leave it as Goodwood. But yeah, it's like Goodwood, quotation, Schitt's Creek. You'd think that doubling as Schitt's Creek would be an insult for Goodwood, right? I mean, the show does joke that it's the middle of nowhere. I mean, come on, they called the place Schitt's Creek. Oh, my God. I can't do this it. This place is a dump. I it's tried. a dump. You know what? It's a hellhole. I tried, John, but I can't. But Goodwood, Ontario, embraces their alter ego. Here's the mayor, 
one more time. You know what? We're an open community. We're happy to have the levees come and film TV shows here. We're happy to be Schitt's Creek. And uh, we're pretty secure in our, uh, <laughs> in our community. Oh, come on. It's just a joke. No, Don. Here's the joke. That town you pass through, it's called Schitt's Creek. And it's where we live. That was our travel guide to the real Schitt's Creek. Thanks to everyone in Goodwood, Ontario, for hosting us earlier this year. On Sunday night, Schitt's Creek cleaned up at the Emmys, winning nine awards, including Best Comedies. Within days of the killing of George Floyd on May 25th this year, statues began to topple. In Alabama, Confederate leaders Charles Lynn and Robert E. Lee fell as Black Lives Matter protests intensified. In Minnesota, members of the American Indian Movement looped a rope around a bronze statue of Christopher Columbus and pulled it off its pedestal. In Bristol, England, protesters pulled down a statue of 17th century British slave trader Edward Colston and pushed him into Bristol Harbor. Across the U.S. and around the world, dozens of historical monuments were removed this year, either by protesters or city officials. The removals captured the attention of millions around the globe, but perhaps none more than the Canadian artist and professor Ken Lum. Ken Lum is one of Canada's most celebrated artists. He's known for his large-scale public art, including Vancouver's iconic East Van Cross. He's a Governor General's Award winner. He's also the co-founder of Monument Lab, which is a public art and history studio that examines the past, present, and future of monuments. And he's the second artist we're featuring in our week-long series on Q, Art Connects, all about artists whose work is helping us make sense of challenging times. I spoke to Cam Lum from his home in Philadelphia back in August. You've been focused around questions around monuments, around public art for a long time now, both as an artist and through your work with Monument Lab. You know, the pressure around statues and around monuments has been building for years, but definitely got to a breaking point in the past few months after the killing of George Floyd. And so what has it been like for you to starting off to see monuments come down and to see others become the, the focal point of protests? Well, first of all, uh, I started uh, with uh, Paul Farber, my colleague at the University of Pennsylvania, Monument Lab in 2012. When we started it, we actually thought we were late to the conversation. We were very interested in um, analyzing monuments for what they express and for what they oppress or suppress. And so, and the voices that are, are not heard because uh, other voices are uh, dominate in terms, of the, uh, in terms of the narrative. And so, um, you know, what's happened now is that Monument Lab is front and center. And, uh, you know, we, we, I've been incre- we've been incredibly busy. This morning, I had one our um, conversation with the Chicago Tribune writer yesterday. It was with New York, or last week it was New Yorker, and yesterday it was with Los Angeles Times. And it's been going like that for uh, several months now. How about you personally? I mean, I know in Philadelphia, the statue of Mayor Ritza was was taken down. Um, have there been moments that you've seen, like, and can you cite an example that's been particularly meaningful to you of a statue being taken down? Well, I think locally, Rizzo is really a very important one to be taken down. Um, I, but, you know, I, I, I don't want to uh, convey the sense that, you know, taking down the statue somehow somehow uh, stops the problem, right? The, prob- the problem is, is, is long-term. The problem is a dialogue. It may quell a certain 
uh, you know, desire among certain people who want certain statues to come down, but that doesn't mean that the problem of, of endemic racism is, is resolved. But certainly that one is a, is a, it was very meaningful locally. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Why exactly have monuments become such a focal point in the protests against police brutality, against white supremacy? I mean, I think in a certain sense, it's a little bit low-hanging fruit because it's very present. And people don't understand, people understand uh, innately that monuments stand symbolically for a whole narrative uh, stream of, um, of unfairness, of social injustice, of, uh, of racism, and so on. So they, fairly or unfairly, they see these as important markers and symbols that encapsulate uh, a lot of the anxieties and, and frustrations and uh, uh, that people are feeling at the moment. So what do you think we're saying when we when we tear down a monument, when we when we take down a monument? Well, I think there, I think you have to break up that question. First of all, taking down a monument, as I said, uh, may satisfy a kind of short term uh, urge among certain parties that, you know, to, to, and, and sometimes I think that's important because of the symbolic release of uh, energy that that, that uh, produces. But I also think that uh, it's important that before a monument is ever taken down, that there be some interregnum that allows for critical dialogue and critical responses, particularly responses by artists, by intellectuals, by creative uh, practitioners, and so on. So I can cite the uh, example of uh, uh, Mayor uh, uh, Rizzo in Philadelphia. You know, the, over the years, his statue was yarn bombed. Uh, someone knitted a, uh, a hot pink uh, bikini and placed it uh, around uh, his torso and, and breast. And it was funny, and people would pose pictures with it uh, and so on. That's a kind of critical dialogue, which I think is, is not simply playful, but also, also very uh, deconstructive. And um, so I think that kind of dialogue needs to be part and parcel of something before we even start uh, the action of removal. Let's go to the flip side of that for a second. I mean, you have the president of the United States offering some pretty harsh penalties for, for taking down statues, for destroying, um, to, to destroying monuments. Why, why do you think people are um, so, why is it so important for people that um, these monuments remain in place? Well, I think for a lot of people, it represents, monuments don't, monuments don't just represent what they, uh, what they depict, right? They could represent, even if someone doesn't really know anything about the history of, of the representation, they feel an attachment to it simply because it's, it becomes habit. They, they go downtown, they see the statue, they have no idea it's about a sl- slave trader or what, what have you. Mm-hmm. And they go, oh, let's meet under, that's where I met my wife or that's where I met my partner or that's, and so on. And so it becomes ingrained as part of, the, as part of uh, one's nature. And when, when it becomes removed, then it becomes a kind of a shock to the system and people, uh, you know, are innately conservative, not necessarily ideologically, but conservative in terms of, uh, in terms of you know, the question of radical change in one's social environment. But, but isn't it, couldn't it also be along the lines of, if, if this person represents my history and you take this down, are you telling me that my history is wrong? Are you telling me that? And then oh, I, do I have to then deal with the loss of power that comes part and parcel with that? Uh, yeah, but, I, but but I think uh, that's the. I mean, it's vex. It's 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 messy, right? History, first of all, is very messy, 
right? I mean, take the example of uh, Christopher Columbus. That's a very messy one. If you go back to the 1950s and earlier, maybe even to the 1960s, you know, Italian-Americans uh, face their own kind of, uh, you know, uh, racism, bigotry against Italian-Americans. They were seen as somewhat less than white. And, and so Christopher Columbus was this kind of unifying figure uh, with, uh, Italian Americans entering into uh, mainstream acceptance, you might say, right? Because it was a, it was a, the narrative w w was was an accommodation of of the greatness of Italians and so on, right? But the fact is, is that to you know go further in terms of Columbus, he was uh, you know he he brought slavery almost immediately. In fact, by the second visit to the uh, West Indies, he brought slavery. Four hundred were enslaved. Uh, he was a, a very avaricious person. He was sponsored by uh, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, who also brought their own type of brutality in the name of under of the uh, Spanish Inquisition. So, you know, I think it's important for people to start digging and finding out about all, all these uh, all these histories that that come attached with something. So speaking of history, when it's a particularly noxious history, you know, when you look at a Confederate statue, when you look at the history of slavery that's implied in that statue, it might even be a statue of someone who owned slaves. It might be a statue in the case in Nashville of someone who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. There are still those who say by keeping those statues up, we are at least acknowledging our history. And by taking them down, we are denying even the poor parts of our history. You know, what do you make of that argument? It depends on the uh, statue. For example, a lot of the Confederate monuments were put up by the Daughters of the Confederacy to propagate a myth called the Lost Cause, that, that um, the Southern culture wasn't premised on slavery, but on a different type of gentility that, and, and that um, African-Americans were treated very nicely, in fact, better than the conditions that they find themselves in the general society uh, today and so on. So, and that was all kind of a, a, a revisionism in terms of in terms of the actual history of slavery and the brutality and trauma of slavery that was visited upon black bodies, right? And, they, and most, most of the uh, statues that were sponsored by the uh, ancestors of, the, of Confederate soldiers, they were put up uh, during moments where there was actually progress in terms of civil liberties and, and, uh, and equal rights. And so it was actually seen that it was actually a countervailing force at the moments when they were implemented. Moreover, they were implemented in the really like 50 years after the end of the Civil War. And in place, and they wanted to have uh, uh, Confederate monuments uh, placed in all 50 states. Now, I'm not a great, uh, you know, follower of American history, but I, I, but I don't think they, the Civil War extended to Montana or Alaska, right, or Arizona. And so, and yet there's a there's a Confederate monument in Arizona and there there are there was or maybe uh, plans for one to be placed in Montana. I, I want to talk. I think there, I think there's yeah. a distinction to be made in terms of, uh, you know, the types of uh, monuments, when, whether they really represent something or not. I, I want to talk about the great work Monument Lab is doing, and I want to talk a little bit about um, more about this moment. But just one final point on this in terms of the arguments I'm, I'm seeing online. Another is that these are. Um, Artworks, and even if they're even if they're taken down, perhaps they should be put somewhere else because they should at least be recognized as the work of art done by the sculptor at the time. What, what do you make of that argument? Well, most of these uh, statues, you're talking about the Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond, Virginia, or Stonewall Jackson, or any of these monuments. They're not they're not very distinguished works of art, if that's what you mean. I mean, they're basically dime a dozen 
types of uh, prosaic renderings and so on. There's nothing really quite sterling about it. I mean, I would say the, you know, the famous emancipation uh, uh, statue of Lincoln with the kneeling slave, which is not unproblematic as a kind of uh, composition, that's a much more kind of interesting iconographic and interesting history too, because it was sponsored by African-Americans as well, of which, of which uh, Frederick Douglass even wrote about it as well as saying this is unnecessary for this at this point in time and so on. But he, he, he recognized that it was problematic, but he also recognized that it was actually a step forward in the context of his day. So, let's, so on. Yeah, sorry. So go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just saying you have to, you have to make these kinds of distinctions. So let's talk about Monument Lab for a second. And I know it's, um, it's, I've been reading so much about Monument Lab in the, in the past few days, and I'm going to ask you to do something relatively challenging here, which is can you, can you briefly describe Monument Lab or at least tell me what the goals of the organization are? Sure. Monument Lab is a, well, now it's become a kind of a collector where we study the uh, monumental inventory of a, of a city. It doesn't have to be a city. It could be a rural back a region or whatever. And then we do a kind of a wholesale analysis in terms of, uh, you know, the power dynamics. Uh, it's, it's a kind of, it's almost like a board game where we, 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 we pinpoint one statue that, and then we start uh, pulling out the histories, not just the histories that's, that's apparent, but also the histories that are denied, that were concurrent with it, the voices, um, the, the, the alternative narratives of history that existed uh, alongside the dominant history, right? Like we live in a, in a society where there's a dominant narrative becomes naturalized. We think that's that's the narrative, but there's all kinds of other voices countervailing interpretations of history that's also unfolding at the same moment uh, as the dominant history. Can you right? give, can you give me an example of a, of a of a statue either in Philadelphia or otherwise that that you've you've sort of done that you sort of expanded, you sort of pulled on all of the threads around what sure. was going around at the I time? Mean, on a very very early on, when I first moved to uh, Philadelphia, I went to the city hall, and, I, and of course, city hall is the most iconic and most important building for any city. And on the apron of city hall, there's a whole roster of statues. I came upon one of John Wanamaker, who had an eponymously named uh, department store. He was apparently a, kind of a master uh, salesman, and he was the person who invented the sales tag, which you would pin on objects and, and so on. So, and there's a big bronze statue of him. And I went, wow, okay. I never heard of him at the time. I'm not saying that he didn't deserve uh, memorialization, but I never heard of him. And I, and then um, that same day, uh, I recall, recall visiting, uh, walking past the house where Billie Holiday lived, right? And uh, then discovered afterwards that she had no statue of her. I'm not saying John Wanamaker didn't deserve uh, recognition, but Billy Holiday sure did. And so when I started looking at the John Wanamaker uh, statue in subsequent visits, I would always see the afterlife or the shadow of Billy Holiday, who's not represented. So that's how we, Monument Lab is always looking at statu- statues and markers for what they say, but also trying to tease out what they also don't say or what what is said denies what... Uh, alternative um, narratives to be said. What would you like to see in the monuments of the future? Well, I think one thing is that we should, uh, you know, recognize that monuments ultimately are just nothing but material extracted from the ground, 70% copper of its bronze, and or, or even more, actually, 90% copper of its bronze and, and, uh, and marble or whatever, right? But I also think 
we should start thinking about monuments in much more temporal, provisional uh, sense. That uh, uh, that we shouldn't over determine these meanings, and we shouldn't certainly read monuments as something that is rooted in a consensus of opinion, right? But that they are very particularized, very subjective, and that they represent very particular power perspectives. And that's, and that's very important to Monument Lab. I know that in doing consultations to see what kind of monuments you'd like to see in a particular city, you, you don't just go to a city council, you go to the people within that community. You often talk to them about the kind of, I mean, I'm, I've heard up to 2,000 respondees per, yeah. per statue to see what they would want to have. Yeah, we do. And we don't, um, we don't also uh, give uh, clues in terms of how they should respond. We just give them extremely open question. Fundamentally, Monument Lab is like a democratic project where we, and people are all, at first, many people we ask are at first very skeptical of, of because they see us as part of an establishment or, or whatever. And so um, they are reluctant to, to uh, converse with us. But so we have to work at that. And then at some point after we engender some trust, they are very forthcoming. And it's amazing how we, how we in higher circles, elite circles, academic circles, and so on, mm. which I remember, we ignore the wisdom that's uh, furnished by people at the local level at our peril. I, there was a line um, from your organization that really struck me. And I wanted to, to, to get your thoughts on it. You said, the next era of monuments should draw attention to the connection between symbols and systems of justice. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, because right now, the, the problematic the, the discussion about monuments and why many people want them down is because they become symbols of injustice, right? And, and part of the problem with uh, the inventory of monuments that are out there, which are so problematic, is that there's a dearth of countervailing monuments of all kinds of worthy subjects, of all kinds of, you know, just how many Native um, American or how many First Nations or Indigenous statues are there in Canada that's not, you know, kind of mythical, that's not, uh, you know, uh, even inaccurate in terms of the, in terms of the attire for the region and so on. There's many, I mean, there's one, a couple in uh, Philadelphia and they're of, of Plains uh, tribes people. Right. And, uh, you know, Philadelphia is not on the plains. So it, that's what we mean by a kind of um, reckoning in terms of uh, giving a greater balance and voice to the unheard historically. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought Canada up because I think that Canada has a tendency to I mean, you as a Canadian know this has a tendency to sometimes look smugly south of the border and kind of and shake our heads and sort of pat ourselves on the on the back. But. Do you think Canada is doing enough to, to reckon with the historical narrative that our monuments put forward? No, I don't think they. I don't think Canada's doing enough, right? I mean, I think Canada's a better place than in, in America, right? But that doesn't mean that Canada is 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 a paragon of virtue. I mean, I I see uh, has there been any real advancement uh, since the uh, Stephen Harper's apology about um, reconciliation in terms of residential schools? I mean, you know, that's that's a very simple question. What has been the progress, real progress, in terms of First Nations and Indigenous people's treatment since that moment? I would say, I would submit, not that much. Are you optimistic that we can create monuments that might bring people together? I think, first of all, I do think there is a role for monuments, right? Because because there are um, all kinds of subjects that deserve to be remembered. There are subjects that unify people. And there are good monuments being created 
all the time. I think the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is really kind of an amazing uh, monument. I think the uh, you know Jewish Library by Rachel Whiteread in, in Vienna is kind of an amazing uh, uh, piece. So they they do occur over and over again. So I'm not saying categorically that there should shouldn't be right, but I do think it starts with um, dialogue and it starts with public input and it starts with uh, it's, it, it's systemic change in terms of uh, a broader and deeper appreciation of of histories particularly the histories of the, of, of the voiceless, the histories of the poor, the histories of the oppressed, the histories of people of, who are maltreated because of their difference. Ken Lum, we're such big fans of you here. Thanks for making the time to talk to us, and I hope you get back to Canada soon. I hope so, too. Thanks a lot for talking to me, Tom. Ken Lum is the co-founder of Monument Lab, which is based in Philadelphia. That interview is part of our week-long series here on Q called Art Connects All Week Long. We are featuring artists who help us make sense of challenging times, who are bringing people together through their art. Check out all of the artists on our website. We're at cbc.ca slash Q. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Adrian Stimson and A.A. Bronson. Their great-grandfathers were enemies, and they're working towards forgiveness. We'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.